morning, Kent Cove. My name is Pastor Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Kent Covenant Church. It's my joy to be with you on this Palm Sunday. Today we begin, or we continue, I should say. Uh, we're not beginning, we're in chapter 14. That's a little past the beginning. Um, we're in uh, Mark 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. It reads like this. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before hand to prepare him for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to, to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. So this morning we begin Holy Week. And I imagine that some of you have begun making preparations for uh, an Easter feast or an Easter gathering, right? You've perhaps been to Safeway or Trader Joe's or Winco or wherever it is that you buy, you know, your best ham or whatever it is that you serve on Easter, right? And you've sent invitations or you've made plans with family. You've done all this preparation stuff. And if you can imagine... While we prepare in that way, and some of you are, you know, those types who you've already done that. Some of us are the types who, eh, sometime this week we'll get to it. But imagine in the time of Jesus that the city of Jerusalem, in its normal state, some uh, commentators suggest perhaps 50,000 people, um, that during the high holy celebrations of the Jewish faith, Passover being perhaps the primary one, swelling to two to three times its size. Imagine the preparations that would have been underway to make that journey. 
You know, if you're coming from outside of Jerusalem, you have to prepare for that long journey to Jerusalem. you got to figure out and what you're going to do for food, where you're going to stay, all of those things. And all of these preparations should or might perhaps remind us of preparations that happened during the feast that they were preparing for, Passover, right? For those of you who perhaps are not as familiar with the story, the the celebration of Passover is the celebration of God delivering his people from Egypt. It was the night when God gave instructions through Moses for the people to paint their doorposts with, the, with blood from a lamb that was sacrificed so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. And so it is a time of great celebration and remembrance. And it should not be lost on us that Uh, The celebration of Passover is exactly the celebration when Christ has come to Jerusalem. Against all of the wisdom and advice of perhaps his disciples to ultimately be our Passover lamb. To be that sacrifice which will cause death to pass over us. Now, it's interesting as we look at all of what's going on here, there is so many different pieces of the story that could capture our imaginations. But there are two I want to focus on this morning. The first comes right at the beginning of the section that we read. Mark says that the teachers, the the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him couple of things about that that I just want to point out that might uh, be of interest to you. That the chief priests and teachers of the law, what, do you, what Mark is talking about here, he's talking about essentially the ruling class of Judaism. He's talking about the power brokers. He's talking about the people, uh, he's not talking about maybe the, you know, those priests that serve out in the countryside. He's talking about the priests that serve in the temple. The priests who, when they say stuff, stuff happens. When they make plans, things go the way they say because they have the power. And they were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly. It struck me as I was reflecting on this again this week that isn't that so much still the way? That when people in power make decisions that they know at least on some level, they know are wrong and cowardly, they always do it secretly. And it always gets told. Right? It's fascinating to me. But then the other piece that struck me was this, was verse 2, where Mark, uh, and this is in quotations, so he's quoting these, these leaders, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. In other words, you might say, well, we're going to do this thing, but we're going to do it in secret when it's not going to cost us as much. We're going to do it when it doesn't cause problems. We're going to make this as convenient for us as possible. And that, friends, is the way of power, 
is it not? And it demonstrates something, I think, that is worth reflecting on as we enter Holy Week. This is uh, what I will call the thing underneath the thing. So we've already seen the thing. The thing is that ugly, the ugliness of power and corrupt power at that, right? That's the thing. But the thing underneath the thing is what? Well, I think the thing underneath the thing is control. You see, the, these chief priests and religious leaders, had, um, they have power, they have education, they have been trained, they are in control of the narrative. And the narrative is the one that they know, and that narrative is that they know who the Messiah is or is not. They know how the Messiah is and is not to behave. They know who is supposed to be in control and who is not. And this whole narrative is all about our human desire to control the narrative, to control the way the story goes. You see, the narrative for these chief priests and religious leaders was that the Messiah would come and he would liberate Jerusalem and he would liberate Israel. And he would not be one who is known to associate, as we've seen time and time again, with those who are not appropriate. It actually shows up in this text as well, and I'm fascinated by it. Verse 3 goes on to say, While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Who? What? First time we've ever heard the name. We don't really know anything about him. There's all kinds of suggestions about who he might be. But I think the name says everything we need to know. Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. Simon the unclean one. Even the week of his death, Jesus is choosing to ally himself with those who are on the outside, those without power, those who are in need most of his liberation and his saving. Now, we can make up all kinds of stories about who, the Simon, who Simon the leper might be, and, and they're interesting. You know, the primary idea that we have is that Simon the leper is someone that perhaps Jesus healed. Or perhaps he was the parent, the, the father of one suggestion was he's the father of uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And, and he's absent because he's a leper. I tend to find that one a little curious. Because if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, I'm pretty sure he could have said to Simon the leper, be clean, as he had done, right? Either way, Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. And once again demonstrates that he will not be controlled by the narrative of the religious leaders. Then we get to some really interesting occurrences in this home of Simon the leper. Verse 3 goes on to say that a woman came 
with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and made a pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. This woman in Mark is not named. And again, you know, you can spend time and try to discern from the other Gospels who this woman might be. It was maybe Martha. It might have been Mary. We're not exactly sure. Mark doesn't seem concerned with that. But I think what I don't want you to miss is that the... I don't want you to miss the radical nature of this act. Right? Because remember, this is not... This is, not our East, this is not our Passover celebration, where we're all together, mixed company, all of that. No, in the Jewish home, there, there's a social divide, right, between a male space and a female space. And the female space was very separate, and they did not intermingle. It was not appropriate. And so this woman scandalously comes into the male space in a way that was not, she wasn't there to serve food, which would have been, sorry ladies, this is not my world, it's their world, right? Uh, But she wouldn't have been there other than to serve. But she comes in and she pours perfume on the head of Jesus. And what I can only imagine would be an act that would have been scandalous to those religious leaders, and as we hear in the story, was scandalous to Jesus' disciples. Now, there's a whole, you know, I think there's a couple reasons why this is. The first is that of that crossing of that barrier. And I want to just think about that for a minute. What must this woman have been feeling and thinking? To put herself in a place where she knows she is going to receive the disapproval at best of the men by crossing that barrier. And yet we have to recognize that somehow this woman has heard Jesus in a way that none of the other disciples have quite caught yet. Right? Because she recognizes the moment. She recognizes that Jesus is now on his way to the cross. And she sees the time. She sees the moment and she's willing to cross those barriers in order to anoint Jesus. Because otherwise there will be no anointing. Right? I mean, remember, when they go to anoint him on Easter morning, I don't want to jump ahead in the story, but he's not there. So he doesn't get prepared for burial, right? So this brave woman ignores tradition, convention, patriarchy, power, all of those things to anoint Jesus and to demonstrate her love for him. Now, a couple of things to say about that. And this is where I want us to really, I was so captivated by this phrase this week. The story goes on. She breaks open this, bo- this bottle of expensive perfume, right? Notice it's not a bottle of Old Spice, right? 
It's, it's a bottle of the good stuff. And she pours it on Jesus' head, and it says, Some of those present, which I think is Mark's, my guess is this is Mark's polite way of saying the disciples were ticked. He doesn't want to name himself, right? We're indignant about this waste of money. And it's fair. Because according to the way Mark describes this, this, this bottle of perfume is perhaps worth a year's wages. Right? So this is an expensive bottle of perfume. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? And then in verse 8, this is the phrase. She did what she could. She did what she could. I've preached this passage I don't know how many times in my life, and that phrase never jumped out at me the way it did this week. She did what she could. And I think part of what it is is that there is, in what she did, it was an extravagant gesture. It was expensive, rare perfume. Perhaps this bottle sat on the mantle in this home as, a, as kind of a status symbol, like a 72-inch curved you know, display might be in our homes, right? Or some other expensive trinket that those people in the know, when they walk in, they, they see it and go, oh, okay, I see it, Right? So in that sense, it was an extravagant gesture, but in another sense, it's what she could do. You see, I think what captivates me about this is that it's what is right in front of her. We in the evangelical church, we love a campaign, and there's a place for this, right? So please, I want to put that caveat right at the beginning Okay? There's a place for these kind of things. But we love the big gesture. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've been to different kinds of Christian meetings, particularly pastors, we're the worst. Right? Where we talk about the BHAG. Right? I mean, it's kind of a dated term, but the big, hairy, audacious goal. Right? We love a big campaign. We love to do big things for Jesus. We love to you know, take the world, all that kind of stuff. There's a place for that. But I think we get a little over-obsessed with it. So much so that we don't do what we could. You follow what I'm saying? There was no campaign. You know, Mary, Martha, whatever this woman's name is, she didn't run a year-long capital campaign to raise the money for this bottle of perfume to be able to pour it on Jesus' head. Right? She did what she could. She had an opportunity and she had a resource and she brought it to bear on the situation. She did what she could. We live in a culture of success and grand gestures and more, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. So much so that sometimes I think we lose sight of doing what we could. What if the lesson here, or what if one of the lessons here for us as we begin this Holy Week is smaller? What if it's a reminder from Jesus to say, do what you can? 
do what you can with what you have. What can we do? Well, perhaps it is extravagant. Perhaps you are, perhaps you have, like this woman did, at your disposal something that is extravagant and expensive and big, and you pour it out in a way that the people around you go, You're an idiot. What are you doing? Maybe that's it. Or maybe, maybe it's more mundane than that. Maybe it's the small thing done with great love. Maybe it's the words that you speak with care and love for a person that 10, 15 years later, you don't even remember, but it changed their life. Have you ever had that experience? I have. Someone who speaks into your life in a way and just simply says something that they perhaps don't even remember and yet it somehow sinks to the very core of who you are. Perhaps it's a kind gesture in a season when you are broken and beaten and desperate for just a drop of water. And someone just simply buys, you know, the car ahead of you at Starbucks pays for your coffee. And it's just a matter of being reminded that, oh, yeah, there's blessings in the world. So friends, as we enter into Holy Week, I want to challenge you to think about doing what you can. Perhaps it's helping a neighbor with some task that they can't do for themselves. Maybe it's buying a coffee for someone. Maybe for those of you, uh, for those, our teens, right? Maybe it's that, um, you know, sitting at that table at lunch. You know the one. The one where nobody else will sit, right? I sat at that table a few times, not because I was being nice. <laughs> it was just my seat. But... Maybe it's a kind word. But I couldn't help but as I reread this story this week to be challenged and to hear a challenge for us from Jesus. Saying, she did what she could. Will you? Please join me in prayer.